This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense, especially today because it's What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We're going to answer, you know, some questions, as many as we've got time for in 15 minutes, uh, and then we'll, uh, you know, let you guys get on about your day. Ideally, and I'm super interested in some of these in particular today. But before we get to them, if you have a question about the economy, business, or technology, you can email those questions to make me smart at marketplace.org or leave a voicemail at 508 UB Smart. Or you just email us and we'll read them like we're going to do this one, which is, I believe, for you, Ms. Adams. Todd Schultz in New York writes this. How will the upcoming student loan forgiveness wave impact credit scores? Will the algorithms adapt and keep scores the same? Or will the scoring industry bump everybody up? That's a really good question, actually. Oh, Todd. Oh, Todd. Oh, Todd. (laughs) (laughs) If only. I mean, logically, you would think that, you know, knocking off all the student debt would, sure, raise your credit score because you'd have less debt. However, it kind of depends. The way this algorithm, these algorithms work, because most people have multiple credit scores, is that it looks at a variety of factors, including the mix of the kinds of credit you have, as well as your debt to income ratio. So knocking off 10 grand of your student loan debt may help you on that debt to income ratio, but it won't necessarily help you out as much on your mix of types of credit. So if all you have is say, eight grand left in your student loan debt, which means you're lucky probably, uh, and it goes Mm -hmm. away, then instead of having a car note, uh, mortgage and a credit card and a student loan, you now just have those first three. So you have less variety of credit. So that can ding your credit score a little bit temporarily, shouldn't last very long. Uh, One of the big credit reporting bureaus, Equifax, says, quote, Depending on your financial profile, resolving your student loan debt might decrease the diversity of your credit mix and cause Mm. a minor and temporary reduction in your credit Mm. score. Um, But ultimately, you know, some people are going to have up to $20,000 of debt erased, and that will, of course, improve your score in the long run, especially if you use any income that's freed up to, you know, pay down other debt. And this is obviously just getting started. This forgiveness process is probably going to stretch into 2023, so it'll take some time for all of these details to to shake out. And again, the dip will probably be minor because the way that most people pay their student loans is in installments. So it was never like you had this giant bill um, in the same way that you might have, say, like a, um, a traditional loan. So it didn't necessarily count against your credit utilization in the same way that some of these other types of debt did. But I mean, look, paying off any debt is good. Even if it doesn't help your numbers, it probably will help your peace of mind. Oh, yes. Consult your own financial advisor. (laughs) 
got to say yeah. that part. I, I, I was just going to say, it always bewildered me that paying off a credit card, right, and closing it and getting rid of it because you don't need the extra credit is bad for your credit score. That's always just... Oh, my like gosh. I asked Crazy. the guy who helps, like, design the FICO algorithm this oh, qu right? question specifically because when we were doing our credit score series over on Marketplace Tech, I said, how... You know, I, he, I said, what are Why, some of the weird right? things yeah. you hear about credit scores? He said, yeah, a lot of people think that when you pay pay down debt, it hurts your credit score, and that's not true. And I was like, wait really? a minute, sir. <laughs> I said, I have 100% <laughs> paid off a yeah. credit card before and had my credit score right. go down. And he sat real quietly for a bit, and he was like, the only way that would happen is if you already pretty much if, if it meant that you no longer had any credit utilization on that card. Mm. So, because he, I made him walk me through this, and I'm sorry to go on this tangent. If, no, say, no, please do. And this is, this is what happened to me. You have a credit card that you used to carry a balance on, right? Mm -hmm. And then you pay it completely off. Depending on when that is looking, when, when they're looking at, your credit utilization. It goes from mm -hmm. looking like you have a card in which you are using to you not having any kind of activity on that account at all. And mm. so it looks like you have fewer lines of credit or something in general. And I, I have to go back and look up his exact verbatim response to this. But he, I definitely called him on it. And he said there are very yeah. rare circumstances where it can make your score go down, but it's typically only people who already are in pretty good control of their credit, and it's it's right. a rare circumstance. But I definitely asked him about it. <laughs> All right, good, good. Thank you. We, right. we'll put that. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show page because that's I, that's I good, handy dandy. You know, news you can use stuff. I will right. look that back up and find it in the All transcript. Right. All right. Meanwhile, yeah. last week, you and Rima talked about the British pound, and then we okay. had a question about a different currency. Hello, this is Rick from Austin, Texas, currently living in Mexico City. I frequently hear that the U.S. dollar is very strong against foreign currencies, notably the British pound, but it seems to me that it's staying about the same against the peso. Why is this, and what can I look for that may predict an improved exchange rate? Wow. Uh, yeah, so it is actually pretty steady. I, I actually had to go look at the chart. So it's about uh, uh, one Mexican peso is worth about a nickel, uh, and it's been that way for a very long time. Uh, so here's uh, the very simple rationale. First of all, um, as many other central banks are doing, having caught up to the Federal Reserve, right, raising interest rates, the central bank in Mexico City was on a par with the Fed raising rates. That is to say, you didn't have a lot of Mexican pesos, you didn't, sorry, you didn't have a lot of currency of any denomination leaving Mexico to come to the United States to get advantage of the interest rate mix, mismatch, right? And in point of fact, Mexican the Mexican federal funds rate, which is the overnight rate that uh, is charged in Mexico, it's the same thing as our federal funds rate, is um, quite a bit higher. It's actually nine and a quarter percent. I looked that one up too. So. Interest rates are going up in Mexico as they are going up in the United States. So that's one reason. The other reason is, generally speaking, there are some good things happening in the Mexican economy, right? It's a little challenging everywhere. But in Mexico specifically, because of the pandemic, 
They have gotten a lot of factories moved from China to Mexico because the shipping distances are shorter. American companies are looking for shorter supply chains and are looking to find new sources for manufacturing since the pandemic. It just takes a while, right, for all that stuff to sink in. As to mm-hmm. when the Mexican peso might change in value, honestly, look at the chart. It's not going to change. It's really not. Mm. It's been a nickel, give or take, right? It's about 19 and a half pesos to the dollar uh, for a very long time. Uh, and I, th- I think you just you, you take the status quo. And honestly, by the way, the way global currencies are going right now, be happy for that. Truly be happy <laughs> for that. And be glad you're not in the British pound. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, right. that was a severe uh, backpedal that happened yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah, no joke. All right, uh, another one now from Deborah Fox. It's an email. Here's what it says. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. You've said many times that the pandemic is not over. At what point will you consider it over? That's a good question. When will we consider it part of the fabric of normal life? Because it for certain sure is not going to go away. Thanks for all you do. You're a huge part of my sanity on a daily basis. Well, that's a very nice thing to say, Deborah. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, thanks, I'm going to let you answer that one first, uh, Ms. Adams. You get to go first, and then I'll give you mine. Well, I don't think the two things you mentioned are mutually exclusive. When, you know... I'm going to consider or we're going to consider the pandemic over and when we're going to consider it part of the fabric of normal life. Mm -hmm. Like, I already consider it part of the fabric of normal life. And I think most of us do. I still don't think the pandemic is over. And there really isn't a formal international governmental body standard for deciding when a pandemic is over. There's a thread uh, from Dr. Alexandra Phelan over at Georgetown Law, uh, and she has a really interesting thread about sort of how we decide when pandemics start and when pandemics end. And one of the things she says, the start of the thread, there's no formal process under international law or governance for declaring a pandemic over. So it's always going to be what society decides. But for me personally, I don't feel comfortable saying a pandemic is over when we still have several hundred people dying from COVID every single Mm -hmm. day. And um, there's this piece in in Fortune that Marissa found where it was sort of taking on this thing we've been hearing throughout the pandemic of like, oh, COVID is just like the flu. And it's, it's just not. And maybe when it gets to be like the flu, maybe then but right now we're still having hundreds of people die every day from covid and i'm just going to read this section from the fortune piece there were 1055 covid deaths in the u.s two weeks ago according to data from the u.s centers for disease control and prevention compared to only four flu deaths the same week and i actually Mm. went to look Hmm. at the cdc's website at influenza influenza mortality and one of the things they say for the data available like september the like the last week in september is that they are lumping at the cdc pneumonia influenza and or COVID 19 right and so there are yeah so there are 2035 what they call pic pneumonia influenza covid deaths reported for the week of september the 29th and of those about half had covid 19 listed as an underlying or contributing cause of death on the death certificate only six listed influenza right so the point being that even if you do have the flu or pneumonia 
COVID-19 could probably be something that maybe tipped you over the edge into death. The other thing is when we say out loud the pandemic is over, we're basically throwing a whole segment of society under the bus. People who are immunocompromised, the elderly, um, people who for some reason or another, and there is a small segment of society that really can't get vaccinated. And I just think that saying out loud the pandemic is over makes us all a little less careful than maybe we should be. And I'm not saying I'm as careful as I used to be, for sure. I've definitely let my guard down quite a bit. But I still think it's important to remember that we're not through it yet. So that's my take. Yeah, I agree largely with that. I think it's it's all in uh, everybody's personal comfort level. It, it is critically important to realize that hundreds of people are still dying every day. Uh, and, you know, I... I Eventually, somebody's going to say it's an endemic, right? The World Health Organization is mm-hmm. going to come out and call it an endemic. I don't think that's going to change behaviors much, right? I mean, people who want to wear masks in supermarkets or on airplanes are going to keep doing that. People who don't want to won't. I think that's kind of the way it goes, you know? I think, I think it's not over. It's not going to be. It's going to be around for a very long time. Very long time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Super quick. Let's do one more question that is specifically okay. for you, Kai. Hey, this is Hi. Andy from Bellingham, Massachusetts. I know that uh, Kai's disdain of everything pumpkin spice is quite legendary. However, Amen. I don't know if he's ever actually said whether he likes pumpkin pie. Uh, so make us all smart and let us know. Thanks. There you was know, a whole chat so over he's... on Discord as to whether or not you're opposed to pumpkin flavors in general or no, just pumpkin I, so, spice. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Okay, so super quick so we can get out of here. Number one, uh, I'm not opposed to all things pumpkin. It's pumpkin spice, the ubiquitousness, the commercialization of it, and the just ickiness of it that just makes me go a little cray-cray. Number one. Number two, not a huge pumpkin pie fan, mostly because it's a texture thing. It's a little gelatinous in my mind, the ones I've ever only Sweet had. potato so pie, though? I'll, I'll pass on those. Uh, I don't know that I've ever had a sweet potato pie. Sweet potato french fries, but that's a whole different thing. Okay. But my wife makes a pumpkin pasta recipe, which uh, is really good. And so uh, it's not pumpkin. It's just uh, with the pumpkin pie, it's a texture thing. And and pumpkin spice is just just, no. Just no. That's where I am. That's what I got. Do you ever eat like roasted pumpkin? Just like the vegetable itself? It's really good. You can make with like rosemary and garlic and red pepper flakes. Mm. It's delicious. All right. I'm I'm not a Um, (laughs) So if you think the pumpkin spice is too basic, what is not basic (laughs) is our funding drive going on right now. It is leading up to something that's actually quite unique and new for us. We are going to have our first ever Make Me Smart Trivia Night on November 3rd at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and it is only for Marketplace investors. So you can donate at marketplace.org slash give smart. It'll be fun. It'll be interactive. You give any amount, you get your invitation. We'll give you the plug one more time. Marketplace.org slash give smart. Hook us up. Yeah, and I don't think either one of us have ever actually done a trivia night, right? No, 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 no. Never have. This will be new. It'll be new. All right, that is it for us today on this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. Kai is out tomorrow, but I will be back with an exciting new guest host.
I guess we'll just wait and find out who that's going to be. In the meanwhile, let's keep sending us your questions. Our email is makemesmartatmarketplace.org. Or uh, so I gathered. Make me smart at marketplace.org or leave us a voicemail. 508 you be smart. There you go. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera with help this week from Tony Wagner. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's show was engineered by Jake Cherry Bentality and Daniel Ramirez. As all y'all know, composed our theme music. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. And that's where we are. That's where we are. <laughs>